Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're at the 11th class of our Wise Restraint Structured Study. Um, this class is on the Upada Sutta, um, a sutta that teaches the importance of an admirable or well-informed and well-focused Sangha. Uh, so in this sutta, we, we can see that the, um, that the well-informed and well-focused Sangha like we have developed here, and again, we have developed this, not just me or the teachers, all of us have done this, um, is the living example of the limiting factors of the Eightfold Path. In other words, we rely on each other to take to the Dhamma, to practice it as best as we can, and so contribute our own understanding of that limiting factor of the Eightfold Path into our Sangha. And so again, then our Sangha becomes that living example of an Eightfold Path. We don't get out of... um, we don't lose the boundary of the Eightfold Path in this room or in our practice. And so what we are continually encouraging each other to do simply through our own practice is to develop the Eightfold Path. And you'll see why we do that. The Upada Sutta. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying with the Sakyans in Sakara. Venerable Ananda had a question for his teacher. He approached the Buddha, bowed and sat to one side. Is it true that having admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues is half of the well-integrated life? That I know you've seen that word or phrase, well-integrated life, elsewhere. Um, Wherever you see that is where most of the translations would use the word holy. And so that has um, religious connotations that the Buddha never intended uh, his Dhamma to have. This is not a a religion. It's a... a, um, it's simply a practice of regaining our minds. Um, and so to call it well-integrated is just that. It's what we do. We integrate the Eightfold Path as our practice. And so as wise Dhamma practitioners, the Eightfold Path becomes that our well-integrated life within that. So the Buddha says, don't ever say that, Ananda. Having admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues is the whole of the well-integrated life. Any, anybody who's practicing the Eightfold Path will come to that recognition that the Sangha is the whole of that life. What does it mean? It doesn't mean that all we do is come to class. It does mean that we, that we participate in the Sangha by developing the Dhamma, again, as best as we can, and then bringing that understanding uh, to our classes. David and I were just talking, uh, I don't know, some of your ears might have been burning about how much you as individuals uh, each bring to our Sangha by simple phrases and uh, uh, seemingly meaningful insights into the Dhamma, but that has such a powerful effect throughout our Sangha. The Buddha continues, The practitioner of my Dhamma, who has admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues, can now be expected to avoid distraction. Again, the limiting factor of the Eightfold Path is present in our Sangha. So can now be expected to avoid distraction that would be arising from unskillful associations and pursue and fully develop the Noble Eightfold Path. So again, if any of us are, are up to this point are confused about what we're doing as Dhamma practitioners, the Buddha just said, we developed the Noble Eightfold Path. And the reference here to having admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues doesn't mean that we don't associate with anyone who isn't practicing the Eightfold Path. It just means as far as our Dhamma practice is concerned, we don't associate it with people that are practicing something else and we don't associate it with other teachings or even some um, uh, seemingly pleasant or new agey ideas or poems or songs or whatever it might be. The Eightfold Path is our Dhamma practice and it's limiting for a very specific reason. The problem with ignorance of Four Noble Truths is that we are constantly distracted away from Dukkha. And we do that to ourselves. So the Eightfold Path in a well-informed and well-focused Sangha limits that. It limits that whole activity into just this. This is the Dhamma. This is what we're doing right now. 
we're, we're learning and we're experiencing the Dhamma. So a Sangha is more than just a place to hear a, a crazy bald-headed guy talk too much <laughs> three times a week. The Dhamma is a place for us to actually have an experience, a direct experience of the Dhamma, of, of what that means to integrate it within um, a, a very small society, which is what we are. And it's a society that is um, open to everything, but focused on this one thing. And it, it is because we stay focused on this one thing that we can be open to everything. And what do I mean by that? It's not that we're open to new ideas to grasp after. We're open to everything that's present in this present in this present moment. Sorry for that. And so we learn through the Dhamma practice, and as we run our classes here, that we are simply a reference point to what's occurring, a dispassionate reference point to what, what's occurring. The Buddha says, listen carefully, Ananda, and I will tell you precisely, and we can listen too, from 2,600 years ago, the Buddha is going to tell us precisely how a practitioner of his Dhamma, who has admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues, avoids distraction and pursues, and most importantly, fully develops the Noble Eightfold Path. Again, the Buddha is emphasizing over and over again, it's the Eightfold Path, it's nothing. So why does the Buddha say this, even though he's the principal in that original Sangha, and you would think that he would just say things once and people would follow it. Of course, that's not true. There were human beings back then as well. And so the Buddha understood that the people that were in front of him were prone to distraction because of their own ignorance of Four Noble Truths. They're not fully developed. They're not Arahants yet. So he keeps emphasizing, come back to the Eightfold Path. It's the Eightfold Path. And you might hear me and our other Dhamma teachers say that often too, because that is the whole point. It's what we do here. The Buddha continues, this Dhamma practitioner, one who is practicing the Eightfold Path, develops right view that is dependent on seclusion. Where do we establish seclusion? First in jhana meditation and then off our cushions but remaining well secluded or well concentrated off our cushion. They are the right view that is dependent on seclusion, dependent on dispassion, the cessation of eye-making, dependent on cessation that results in relinquishment. Relinquishment of what? David. Wrong views. Wrong views. Relinquishment of wrong views. Congratulations. That's the gold star for today. And so, how are, what is the um, foundational presence for wrong views? It's ignorance of four noble truths. Because since we, because we don't understand who we are, and we don't understand the world that we are hoping to relate to, we create a fabrication about ourselves, and we create fabrications about what's occurring in the world. And so those result in an ongoing wrong view. It's a, it's a clouded, it's a, uh, it's a view of reality that is, at, that is at least one step removed and often quite a distance removed from what is actually occurring here. And it doesn't mean that we're living in some kind of uh, holographic illusion. It simply means we don't understand who we are and what's occurring. So how could we possibly form a reasonable understanding of what's occurring if I'm lacking the foundational right view to see this clearly. And again, that is what a well-informed and well-focused Sangha provides to all of us. The Buddha continues, they also develop right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, and right mindfulness and right meditation, all dependent, all of that, the entire Eightfold Path is dependent on seclusion, dependent on dispassion, dependent on cessation, that results in relinquishment. So that last little bit of a, a sentence is so important. That results in relinquishment. Is what I'm holding in mind in this moment, not what I hope to, hope to hold in mind when I leave here or when I get a little better with meditation. What am I holding in mind in this moment? Is, will that result in relinquishment? What does that mean? It means am I recognizing eye-making in this moment? Because that is, eye-making is the manifestation of wrong view and, and ignorance. And so the, the, the Sangha is the limiting factor and the Eightfold Path is the limiting factor within that overarching structure, if you will. 
So the Buddha concludes that by saying, this is how a Dhamma practitioner of my Dhamma, who has admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues, avoids distraction and pursues and fully develops the, eight, the Noble Eightfold Path. So it is our within a well-informed and well-focused Sangha that we are able to integrate the Eightfold Path and so use that path to awaken, to gain full human maturity. And it is just that way. So you see now the, the significant uh, harmony between the, 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 the harmony that, that is that is the harmony that is established in the triple refuge. We take refuge in the human Buddha, a human, a human being actually figured this stuff out. He left us his Dharma, the second refuge. And because of that, we are able to develop, <clears throat> excuse me, I know you're all hanging on my word. What are we going to develop? <laughs> we, we developed the Eightfold Path in that way. And again, I, I, I know I drive some of you crazy when I keep saying how simple this is and you're, you're struggling with, the, with your own complicated minds, but it really is that way. The Dhamma is utterly simple. It is, the, it is the simplest human act that any of us can do is to awaken to be a human being. And so the Dhamma is necessarily simple because it's rooted in truthfulness. I remember before I came to the understanding I had of the Dhamma, but what motivated me toward looking at the suttas was I just had this feeling that if a human being actually awakened, he couldn't have taught other human beings something this convoluted and, and complicated and otherworldly and impractical. It just didn't make sense to me, even though I kept practicing it. And eventually I realized that the Buddha didn't teach anything that was not, not he didn't use one word that was impractical. Everything he taught had a focus and had a very narrow focus, which was develop this, this noble eightfold path. The Buddha then says, it is only through fidelity to my Dhamma that one may know that having admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues is actually the whole of a well-integrated life. It is first in dependence on me. Remember, think of these words from 2,600 years ago and how powerful and relevant they are today. It is first in dependence on me as an admirable friend that those being subject to birth gain release from being subject to birth. When I think about that, that almost brings me to tears. This awakened human being is is really, he's almost imploring us to let him be our friend. It is first in dependence on me as an admirable friend. What does it mean? It means that we, that we know that this awakened human being has my well-being in heart and he's still able to, to project that 2,600 years later. He is a friend of ours, a friend who cares about us. And he's telling us, yes, I'm your friend. You can trust me. And if you can do that, if you can do that first, to understand that a human being awakened and he left his Dhamma, this, this independence on me as an admirable friend, is a teaching in true refuge. And that those being subject to birth gain release from being subject to birth. That those being subject to aging gain release from being subject to aging. That those being subject to sickness gain release from being subject to sickness that those being subject to death gain release from being subject to death. What is the Buddha teaching here? He's not teaching that we, that we don't age, through the, that we can, some kind of magic um, mantra or something might appear that we can, we can not age anymore or get sick or be, or be subject to death or even from disappointment. What it means is we'll stop contributing to that by reacting to birth, sickness, aging, and death. We'll cease reacting to not getting what we want or receiving what we don't want. And it, it is through that limiting factor that we gain awakening. And we do that within the Buddha's words. It is in dependence on me as an admirable friend that those subject to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair have gained release from sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair. Independence on an admirable friend. Now the Buddha is not asking us to worship him. And we know that because he's saying, don't worship me, practice an eightfold path. But he says right here that all of the things that bother us, all of the things that distract us, 
all of the things that we think we have to engage with and end before we can be happy, safe, or secure are all fabrications. And through the Dhamma, we can recognize that and abandon it. Think about what's going on in the world. And I know some people get upset when I refer to the world, but the world is a reflection of what the world is holding in mind. It's a reflection of mindfulness. And so we can clearly see that what people are holding in mind to a great extent doesn't lead to a peaceful and calm society. Why is that? It's because the principles that people are holding in mind or the the beliefs don't contribute to that. But we're so caught up in an ideology and, and salvation, you have to do this and you'll be saved in my world, that we, all we do is continue to create conflict and strife in the world. So you've heard me say over and over again, and I think you see it now, within a, a well-informed and well-focused saga, I learn to end conflict in my mind. And so that I am incapable of bringing conflict into the world. And David might want to talk about this later, but I'm not going to put him on a spot to do that. But he's got a good story about it. So when we're preoccupied with sorrow, regret, uh, let me read them all. Sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair. We can't help but be taking this moment and every moment that follows and every moment in the past personally. Why? Because I think I'm suffering. I think this is happening to me. If I have a shred of uh, reference to dukkha in my mind is because I'm taking this moment personally. And in a, uh, in an, an exaggerated phrase that relates to that is I've lost my mind to eye-making, to wanting this moment to be different. And because I want this moment to be different has nothing to do with what's occurring, but because I want this moment to be different, I fall into sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair. It's not because of what's inherent in the moment. It's because of how I'm viewing what's occurring in this moment. That's called a wrong view. But wise restraint and the Eightfold Path allows me to be present for this moment so I can recognize and immediately abandon the eye-making that I've brought to this moment. And the Dhamma is, again, excuse me, as simple as all that. The Buddha continues, from those that have gained release in this manner, not in some other way, not through magic or even some other um, useful practice. From those that have gained release in this manner, from dependence on me, can one know how having admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues is actually the whole of a well-integrated life. In other words, if we want to know how important a Sangha is, we develop the Dharma. And again, it makes sense. You, You couldn't know uh, you couldn't know how much fun your Elks Club meeting is on Friday night unless you actually went to the Elks Club. I'm not suggesting anybody go to the Elks unless you want to. And so you wouldn't know how powerful a well-informed and well... or Let me use the word necessary. How necessary a well-informed and well-focused saga is unless you actually have the experience. Because then it's just an idea, isn't it? And so we've all seen, especially those that have been here more than just a couple classes have seen people come and go. And it's because they didn't find what they were looking for. That's not a reflection on the Dhamma, and it's not a reflection on them. It just simply means they didn't, and we did. And again, that is how you approach a way of thinking that is not rooted in salvation. It's simply rooted in understanding. Remember, the Buddha teaches that right view, that thing that we're all chasing after, right view is understanding dukkha. Right view is understanding the cause of dukkha. Right view is understanding the cessation of dukkha. And right view is understanding the path leading to the cessation of dukkha. And understanding, remember it in, in, the dom, in Dhammic terms, is having a direct experience of what we're talking about. So it's not a concept. Everybody can understand conceptually the word dukkha, or, or if we call it stress. We all know what stress is. But we don't understand what stress is in relation to the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. We don't realize that we are preoccupied with dukkha. And in so, or, or in so doing, because of our preoccupation with stress, we keep losing one moment and the next moment and the next moment because we're caught up in the passion of the moment rather than the dispassion of understanding. From those that have gained, I'm going to read it again. 
From those that have gained, gained release in this manner, from dependence on me, one can know how having admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues is actually the whole of a well-integrated life. You'll know it from direct experience. And that's the end of the sutta. So again, that last line is so important. If you want to know the Dhamma, and it is in dependence on me, meaning it's dependence on the Dhamma, that you know the Dhamma. Again, it makes perfect sense. What was hard for me when I... of um, to really start integrating the Dhamma rather than just um, kind of memorize concepts that I could talk about with my friends um, was that I had to get past the idea that this is just an idea, that, that spirituality, if you will, is just an idea or that um, the one mind consciousness that I thought we were supposed to be chasing after is is just an idea. So you don't really have to have an experience of an idea, do you? You can keep thinking about it forever, which is what we do. We hold in mind the idea of who we are in relation to an, the idea of the world, both fabrications, and so we've lost our life. Or we can take to the Dhamma, develop seclusion, rooted in jhana meditation, integrate the Eightfold Path and, and participate in a well-informed and well-focused Sangha, for the purposes of being present for that. The Dhamma is, not, and not to be too cute, the Dhamma is its own Dhamma. In order to know the Dhamma, you got to practice the Dhamma. In order to know the importance of a Sangha, you have to have the experience. And you may not. You may come here and realize that this isn't for you, like I just said. But those of us are, that are wise Dhamma practitioners, that want to take this to its culmination, meaning gaining full human maturity, will practice just this way. And let me just say it this way, and you'll stop whining about it. <laughs> because it is just this. I said it that way because we can, even though the, the Dhamma is simple, direct, and very gentle, our approach to it can at times be the opposite of all of that. And so that's why we have to remember these things. So just come back to the Dhamma. When we're caught up in eye-making in relation to the Dhamma, we take a breath and come back to the Dhamma. And so we can have this experience of awakening. So let me go to uh, Brian. How are you? Oh, wait a minute. I want to go to Deb is our, uh, is our newest member and she has just begun her teacher training. So I'll put her on the spot first. Welcome, Deb. Well, hi, everyone. Hi, Deb. <laughs> Good morning. What do you think of today's sutta? I think it's a good reminder. I don't know if reminder is the right word, but yeah, that's it's exactly what I'm thinking that. of at the moment. Yeah, it's exactly that. I, I have a lot of eye making that I'm doing, so that's good. Yeah, you're in the right place. The reinforcement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, again, that's the, the, the Buddha taught the Dhamma to, so that we can end eye making. And it, it's just that. So we're all here because at one point we were guilty of that. No longer. None of us are engaged in eye-making anymore. Thank you, Debbie. Welcome to our Sangha. Good morning, Brian. Morning. Um, yeah, I just I spent a week in Florida at a conference watching a couple thousand people eye-make continuously. <laughs> How was it? And uh, <coughs> it was weird. It was like this almost out-of-body experience just yep. being in my little secluded island, right? You know, staying with my breath as much as possible, not taking all of it personally. And um, I came out relatively unscathed. And I, I remember we had a few months ago a conversation about preferences. It's like I, I didn't, it wasn't bad that I was there, but I definitely had a preference to be here yeah. with this group, right? Like it's just a much different experience. Yeah. Um, that's that's recognizing it just, without getting caught up in it. In right. Yeah, it was. Um, it was like I've, I've not I've not felt that way before about conferences. They've always been just very stressful, very very exhausting. Um, not not pleasant experiences for me, and this one was just it just was what it was. And now it's over. Yeah, it was. <laughs> so, it was. It, it was it, and I get to do it again next week. So, yeah. and you're just a reference point to it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it wonderful, Brian? It's crazy. Again, it, it ended up being just an ordinary moment, but because of its 
because you were able yeah. to be present for it, it was something remarkable. Well, I even had to speak in front of, I don't know, 50 to 75 people. And that for the first time in my life was a non-event for me. Wow. That's so, I mean, it's the just, first time? Well, I've, I've spoken in public many times, but this is the first time that I wasn't, wasn't nervous, wasn't... Yeah. That's, that's you know, like the body was going through stuff, right? Like I was, you know, sweating and I was cold and it, I just wasn't, again, taking yeah. it personally, which yeah. allowed me to be in the moment, be thoughtful and articulate and yeah, not get caught up about being on stage in front of people. That's, that's surreal. And that, that you were, you were having bodily reactions to what was occurring, but that wasn't, that you didn't allow it to distract you. That's really remarkable. That's a that's deep great. level of concentration. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no, it was, it was great. Yeah. yeah, thank you. It's just such a good example of what we're talking about today. Well-informed and well-focused Sangha that can have that experience with you. Thank you, Brian. Good morning, Jen. Dhamma teacher, Jen. Hi, John. Hi, everybody. Um, you know, I was, I was thinking back to like the first, one of the first few times that I heard this sutta and was like, what do you mean what do you mean? I just, I just meditate and now I'm, I, I am not subject to sickness, aging and death. What? Like, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to get sick just from, just from what, what is this nonsense? You know, but I had enough presence. Uh, I had enough presence of mind to go. All right. You just don't get it yet. You just don't, you just don't get it yet. And, um, and that is what he's teaching us here when he's telling us that we need to sort of, at least what I'm hearing is that what the Sangha, the Sangha's view of what's happening is going to lead you in the right direction if you're lost. So it's sort of like, you know, don't believe, don't believe everything you think. Sort of to me, it highlights that our own thoughts are really often going to lead us astray. Yeah. That's such a great way to put it. Don't believe everything you think. Even with, even with the practice, it's still, you know, your your angst. It's not that you're not going to get sick; it's that you're not going to suffer sickness, and and that is not an easy feat. So yeah. you need other individuals to help you. Yeah. Do that. Yeah, and notice the the, the verbiage here. I mean, it, they're my words ultimately, but it, it, this was a little bit of a difficult suit to 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 restore because it hints of ending birth and ending sickness in a, in the way that we somehow we can save ourselves from these human uh, experiences until I understood the, right. the entire Dhamma. And so the appropriate word was that we're subject to these things. We're subject to sickness. It doesn't mean that we're, right. it means that we're as a consequence of having a human life, we're going to get sick. What the Buddha is saying, because in the, now the context that you understand now is we don't take it personal. And it goes back to right. the three classes ago in the Salata Sutta. When I get, when I get, upset because I'm I'm 66 and not not the good old days of 65 anymore I I that's I making I've lost this moment instead of just okay this is what 66 is like I'd rather have the right. it, it, I mean it really is true I'd rather have the experience of what 66 is like than not you know and that's the only choice we ever have we either have a human experience or we don't or we can live in a fabric so there's three you know but this is right. It. Yeah, you can also suffer the sixty-five because yep. you're mourning sixty-four and sixty-three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and what is that rooted in? How? What type of thinking could ever lead me to think that sixty-six is bad when I'm the one that's having sixty-six? Self-loathing. To think that it's that that because I'm sixty-six and I can't I can't you know I can't dunk basketballs anymore. Does anybody believe I ever could? <laughs> that, that somehow that diminishes me. No, it, it, just, it just means I'm not going to be dunking <clears throat> basketballs anymore. Does anybody believe I could? 
it's just that you know and it's just this present moment and then this present moment is just a, a a uh it's a remarkable moment because i'm here and who is who else could say it's not it's not a, a a meaningful moment it's up to me to decide that isn't it it's not up for the experience or the structure of the experience or or anything it has to do with the quality of my mind or the quality of your mind thank you jed John, isn't it, isn't it, to go back to Brian's, the word preference, that really our whole lives without the Dhamma is a series of desires and aversions and the constriction that it causes where you can't be present. So it's just a desire after desire after a desire. You're, yeah, you're talking about uh, skillful desire and unskillful desire as a, and a preference. So we can have we can have all kinds of preferences in this moment. How I want this moment to be or how I want this piece of chocolate cake to taste like or how I want you to smile, etc., etc., etc. Or I can simply be present with what's occurring and not need anything to be any different than it is. And again, that's what, what David, I think that's what you're talking yeah, about. Without it's, your practice, without guidance of the saga you have no chance to give you that space to interrupt it and yeah. you'll just see it as this is life and always be disappointed that you're not 64 the minute you turn 65 yeah hmm. holy crap I'm going to be 67 so, <laughs> so or worried about when you turn 68 yeah it's it again I'm I, for me, this is my life. For you, it's your life. Whatever it is, and and it, it doesn't. Um, it's it would be foolish for me to to regret being sixty six and think about being twenty four or sixty five, simply because it's not what's occurring. It's just it's just foolish. It's it's a it's a a slight form of mental illness, isn't it? To think that way, to wish I could be something other than I am, no matter what's occurring. I mean, I'm, and I'm I'm talking about a body that might be even in worse shape than mine. It doesn't matter unless I take it personal. That's the whole point of everything. It's the whole point of this sutta and a sangha that examples that. Thank you, David. Yeah. There, there's an old, another aspect of this, uh, this preferencing. Um, well, that's why I want to talk a little more about that. Yeah. Well, when, when you are in a place in, in your life where you have choices, then you can just go by your preference. As long as you recognize that this is only a preference, yeah. oh yeah, this and that, does that, not, uh, you know, this does not diminish me or 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 aggrandize me. It's just a preference. Yeah, that's just that's just being a human being, and mm-hmm. you, and and I would say being uh, recognizing how fortunate it is to have a discriminating mind that doesn't have to eye make it. A good example, silly example would be I go to buy a new pen for myself and there's a red pen, a blue pen, and a gray pen. Is it I making to pick the red pen? Only if I walk around the world wanting everybody to see my red pen. That I somehow decided that red pens make me something special. But if I just prefer to have a red pen, that's not. there's no I making in that. If I prefer to have eggs one morning and cereal the next morning. That's not I'm making. That's just living in the world. If I prefer to be part of a well-informed and well-focused sangha as opposed to one that's not, that's not I'm making. And so Brian brought up preferences and David touched on it earlier. So without the limiting factors of the Dhamma, I have unlimited preferences. I can prefer this and prefer that, prefer you and prefer that and go my whole life trying to get those things that I prefer and never be satisfied with it or I can prefer awakening in this moment. And that guides my thinking towards one thing, towards the Dhamma. What, what is my preference? What am I going to? What do I want out of this moment? And it's, and it's, scary. it's, it's okay to ask yourself, I know that sounds like eye-making, but in the context of the Dhamma, what is most important for me? For me to awaken, to be a fully mature human being so that I can actually have a human life. Kevin, I think I skipped over Mary. I was going to call up Mary. We'll get we'll get to you, Mary. How are you, Kevin? 
Very well. Thanks, Sean. Good morning, everybody. Um, this this is a good reminder, I think, to go back to what Deb said. Um, when I think back to when I first started to come to your classes, it was a meditation class. I was going to find out, like, oh, the magic of meditation, so everything will just be fine and dandy after that. And then what I came to was the Dhamma and the Buddha and the Sangha. And this is a reminder of this is the way it works. And meditation is a different thing. It's, it's increasing concentration and diminishing eye making, which is simple, but extremely difficult, extremely, takes extreme amount of work. So thank you for the reminder and thank you for the class. Thanks. Thank you everybody for your comments. Thank you, Kevin, for your practice. I, is reminded there was a time when Kevin first started coming. I was teaching uh, just in the next building over, I think. Anyway, uh, a Thursday night class, and there were some nights when Kevin uh, when Kevin was the only uh, student there, and those were some of the best classes. Uh, and I would encourage you to go seek them out and listen to them. Uh, and it, and what the point I'm making now is that that just me and Kevin was a sangha. And we were a well-focused and well-informed sangha. And it really was remarkable. Some of those classes were just outstanding. I had a, uh, a, a one-on-one I class. Guru. Pardon me? I had my own personal guru at the time. Yeah, well, call, call me a guru. But. <laughs> you, had a, you, had a, you had an admirable friend, if I can put it that way. If I can put that label on me. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Kevin. Thank Hello, you. Mary. Hi, John. Hi, everybody. Um, it's a wonderful teaching. Um, I, I've never tried to meditate outside of this, but I know that it, but I don't need to have done that to know that um, it takes the teaching, it takes the reason why you're meditating, and the simplicity of knowing that it's just about you know, building your concentration by focusing on your breath. Because yeah. I think a lot of people can say that and that's said in a lot of circles and other places. But if you're alone with your feelings and your thoughts and you don't know how to deal with them in relation to your breath, you know, feelings rise, they pass. Yeah. Um, you know, that can be uh, an unfulfilling uh, effort for sure because yeah. you don't have the education or the informing of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path to provide you the wisdom of what to do on the cushion. And then, like, the real key is the wisdom to be able to take what you experience as the presence of mind on your cushion into your world so that yeah. you don't have the compartments of your life like you know for a long time I've had compartments of my life you know there's a lot of I don't know rules of the road or rules of the playground or whatever that I grew up in in a corporate environment that I've survived in and you can't have that behavior and and then this behavior over here you know um and the, the key is to you know, pull them together, integrate them, and be able to live your life on the cushion in at a conference, in a conference room, uh, in a meeting, in a difficult situation, uh, when you're advising somebody or informing, you know, you're, you're living through a hierarchy, um, you know, a fabricated hierarchy in a, in a corporate environment, but you have to... Um, the, the value of having this integrated and being able to be the person you are on the cushion when you're off the cushion as fr- frequently as possible. It's not, you know, you're, you're aiming for every moment. <laughs> um, and I try, I, I do try that. And there are times I have to take pause and step back because something is affecting me personally or I am making it about me because those were the rules I lived by, you know, or grew up in as we all did. And um, then those things start to happen less and less. And the gaps between your life off the cushion and your, 
and your experience on the cushion gets smaller and smaller as sort of a reward and reflection and um, I think you used another word, but like verification that you're integrating this and you're starting to live a, a, a wholly integrated life. So um, it's all there for the taking. <laughs> Thank yeah. you, John. Thank you, Mary. You just gave a great description of what a well-integrated life means. It means that we it's not just meditation. We take that seclusion off our cushion and bring it into our moment-by-moment moment life. And that is the distinguishing characteristic between what I found the Buddha taught and everything I practiced before because it just there was none of that. And a lot of it was... Um, well, I, I started with a mantra-based practice, but then uh, most of the... Uh, that was a Hindu-based, transcendental meditation... Um, and then I started in the different schools of Buddhism and some that used meditation as the key focus and others that mentioned meditation but hardly ever used it. Um, but most of modern meditation is just that. It's just sitting and trying to figure out some way to do that without losing your mind. And unfortunately, when there's just that practice and someone is not very stable, that practice can lead to some great difficulties. And I've had a fair number of people call me um, talking about how their their meditation practice seems to be making things worse. And it's, and if you think about it, when you if you have a, a mind that is it, even troubled, it's, use that word, in just the, the slightest way, and all you're doing is sitting maybe twice a day, now forced to rehash those things because you don't have any other focus, it's just going to make those things worse, or it it, it it can make those things worse. And I've gotten calls from people that are just in a panic about where their meditation was taking them because it's just just that. Um, it, I mean, from my point of view, it it would be um, it would be wrong livelihood for me to teach just meditation. But it's not wrong livelihood for the Dalai Lama to teach just meditation because that's what he believes in. You understand what I'm saying? So we have a practice that uses meditation in a completely different way than any practice I've ever had, even though the method is familiar to almost everybody that ever meditated. And it's because of the, the intention behind jhana meditation to deepen concentration, not for, not for experience, and the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path that it can that we can actually bring it off our cushion as Mary so eloquently described and integrate it into our lives. Thank you, Mary. Hello, Laura. Hi, John. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. I, I really appreciate everyone's comments and um, yeah, especially um, Brian and Mary bringing up uh, that honesty and um, you know, their experience of how difficult it can be sometimes to, re-enter society or you know take what we um learn in the sangha and through meditation and, and class you know out into our work environment or school or wherever but i'm realizing that you know the the sangha as a group it's it's not a place to you know hide from society or or to develop yeah. seclusion in that way or avoid you know, my responsibilities to my, um, you know, that I have to people in my family or, or work or whoever I come across. It's, it's really a place for, you know, all of us to come together and practice, um, you know, that heightened concentration. And um, yeah, it gives me a lot more confidence to kind of and it's a safe environment to do this, to practice yeah. in, but it gives me a lot of confidence to like re-enter, you know, society and, and to deal with it in a way that's aligned with what I learn in class. So, Thank you, Laura. When you first came here, you, you felt welcome in here, didn't you? I mean, I'm not putting words in your mouth. If you didn't, I'd like to, for you to tell me that, but I think you did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yet at the same time, it was, yeah, it was welcoming in a way that wasn't like, um, uh, but yet people were still their own, you know, had their own individual yeah. commitments to 
developing seclusion of the mind, developing concentration, but it's like without being an island unto yourself in a way that prevents communication. I really like in this sangha how we can communicate with each other and be honest yeah. and, yeah. you know, collaborate in a way as we're navigating through um you know, what we learn from each sutta. So it's, yeah, it's really supportive. But at the same time, we each have our own commitment to that, um, yep. you know, to our individual minds. Yeah, yeah. And it, it the, the Dhamma in that way is quite unique in, in that uh, we really are each other's teachers. And uh, the, the, the structure, I've had people leave because they don't, they say it's just too much talking and they don't want, you know, they don't know why we have to have these discussions. And <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> but as the Buddha says, there's no, you know, without what we're doing here, there's no Dhamma. We, we teach only from the suttas, and that's what we talk about. And, and it's what works. It's what keeps us well-focused. And, and it's what allows this place to be so welcoming, I think, because we're not, we don't have an agenda. We're not trying to, you know have a nice Buddhist practice and, and put a little bit of leftist politics in here or rightist politics in here. We just practice this or, or even some kind of, you know, some other type of Buddhist teaching. We don't bring it in here. This is what we practice and it works. And again, we're not in opposition to anything. We just want to do it this way. Thank you, Laura. Good morning, yeah, Tom. Thank you. Hi, John. Who are, are you? Are you still in the um, Philippines? I am. I'm actually... I'm floating on a lake, a little, like a sort of mangrove area. It's a bit, and I've got kari, Filipino karaoke singers in the background. <laughs> <laughs> so it's an it's a, uh, interesting uh, setup. Looks um, great. Tom is a world traveler, and I, so I travel vicariously with him, so I want all the details. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we're, um, it's actually been a, um, a really, a bit like Brian, but it's, uh, it's been a really busy week and it's actually been quite tough um, from a, uh, you know, a Dharma perspective. Um, I've, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just the world. I, I haven't yet fully sort of calibrated my life to make, you know, so that I have the ideal conditions mm. to always consistently be practicing the dharma so you know i had maybe three or four weeks where i was really i was able to simplify my life and i was really focused on the dharma and i i got so many benefits from it and then the last week has just been full on and it wasn't really anything i could at least again how my life is set up at the moment it wasn't that much i could do about it um other than you know quit my job um and yet it 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 was tough, actually. It, it just, just, um, I just noticed. It's almost like I, I, I arrived in the Philippines with, a, you know, a great. If I give a sports analogy, a great level of match fitness. You know, I'd been really consistent in my practice. I had, I was, um, I, I had really simplified my life, and then suddenly I just had a week of chaos, and it was so difficult to find that time to carve out that time to practice and to study the Dharma. And I just noticed my sort of levels of you know, match fitness to sort of follow that analogy, just going mm. down and my stress levels gradually just rising as the, as the week went on. Um, so, um, but having said all of that, um, I'm still just so grateful um, to be able to, you know, keep coming back. And I do eventually, even if I miss a couple of days, I come back um, sooner rather than later nowadays. And, uh, you know, I've been sort of um, listening to, talks in the middle of the night here and just trying to sort of calm my mind down again um and yeah even now i mean i didn't actually think i'd get on i didn't think they'd have wi-fi here but remarkably they do and i'm in the most unlikely settings to be able to study the dharma so i'm really grateful to be able to do that and it's um it's a great way to sort of cap off my my day and to yeah as i said just to re refocus um my my priorities around the dharma so thanks for the teachings um, and uh, thanks for everyone's comments and sharing, and just just yeah, great grateful to be part of this uh, this sangha. 
Thank you so much, Tom. I, I didn't believe, I can't believe that they have Wi-Fi in a mangrove forest in the Philippines, but I'll, I'll take your word on it. Uh, you, you so describe, again, Dhamma practice, that, you know, it's, it, Dhamma practice itself isn't permanent. And our, our relationship to our Dhamma practice isn't permanent. It's always changing. And outside conditions affect it. You know, and, and you, come, you keep coming back to the refuge, is what you described, the refuge of the Dhamma. And, it, and you, you truly experienced it as a refuge, didn't you, Tom? That you, you got caught up in the, in the Philippine stuff, but you Absolutely. had the Dhamma to, to, you know, to keep you going. I couldn't imagine, you know, I lived my whole life rather successfully without the Dhamma. But I couldn't imagine living my life now without it. I, I just couldn't. I, I just, I, and I wouldn't want to. Mm, likewise. Thank you, Tom. Uh, yeah. Tom is in teacher training. Uh, Tom, uh, meet Deb. She's in my top right corner. Deb, wave. Deb has just started Hi, her Deb. teacher training. And Tom is finishing his. Uh, he'll be getting his certificate soon. If, if he gives us a good presentation. <laughs> we'll see. I'll do my best. Have you started work on that at all? Have you looked at it? Um, I, I've I've read the sutta, um, but I'll, I'll I'll give it a bit more. Yeah, a bit more thought this week. Okay, not too much. You don't. You yeah. you've got the dog. Don't over people. Make sure I prepare as best I can. Yeah, but not too much. Thanks, Tom. Hello, Dev. Hi, John. How are you? It's good to see everyone. Uh, I'm sorry, it's it's um, a bit difficult for me to speak right now, but oh, okay. I just want to say I very much appreciate appreciate being part of this sangha, um, and um, also uh, happy Father's Day. It's a day early, but for any dads there. Yeah, you, I was going to say that. Jeez, I'm glad you joined us, Deb. <laughs> uh, you want to you want to have a chat later? Give me a call. I got time this afternoon. Sure. All right. Thanks, John. Look forward to it. Hello, Adam. Good morning, John. How's your Sangha experience? Well, as I've said before, um, I can't overemphasize how important this Sangha has been to my practice. It has been the key to unlocking the Dhamma for me, or as as David put it, interrupting my banging my head against the wall. (laughs) For 32 years trying to, you know, I knew that the Dhamma intuitively was going to, was the right thing for me, was going to help me. But I could not get to it because I was spending all my time studying all the all the writers, you know. Yeah. Maybe that in Buddhism in college. I studied Tibetan at Columbia with a very famous teacher and all this stuff and wasn't getting anywhere. Yeah. Until I started coming here. Right. And I think that um you know it, what gives it its focus and its being well informed is what the sutta says is this idea of uh admirable friends and, and friendship. Yeah. You know, it's the fellowship and trust of this Sangha that That's has, right. you know, really uh, illuminated the Dhamma for me um, and made yeah. it all kind of fit together. And it's just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. I'm deeply grateful and uh, thank you all, as always. Yeah. Thank you, Adam, for your kind words. I think I think we need to raise our rates here for that. Mm-hmm. For that oh, I also always. have to point out that Ron has a red pen. Uh, yeah. You do? Uh, <laughs> oh, maybe that's what got me thinking see? about it. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. Good morning, Dhamma teacher Rob. Good morning. Um, <clears throat> yeah, one of the good sutras. Um, what I saw in that is not only that <clears throat> the, the Sangha is the whole of the integrated life, <clears throat> but the Sangha is a whole with the Dharma and the Buddha. It is, you know, it, it is a one thing you cannot separate. Yep. It's yep. Just, it's, this is the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. This mm-hmm. is it. And, and you can't um, look at uh, the Sangha and enjoy it without having the Dharma there and without the, the gratitude to the Buddha and, and the understanding that, that, you know, he was just another guy. You know, he figured it out. Yeah. And uh, understanding the, the yeah understanding the, the, the place of the Buddha the, the, the person himself Siddhartha understanding him is uh, is really helpful yeah um, especially if it allows you to to see that that he is you know there is no difference between 
Siddhartha and and yeah. and, and me. And in so doing, we're able to see the the humanity that's inherent in the Dhamma, not something magical or mystical. Yeah, yeah. It's, but it's, it begins with that. With this, it, yeah, this guy was a purely, human being. It's yeah. purely human. And, yeah. and, and the result is purely human as well. And, and he said that over, I mean, in, in hundreds, maybe thousands of suits. He says, I'm just an ordinary guy. You know? yeah. I'm the Tathagata. I'm the guy that did, did it first. That's all. Yeah. And, and look what happened. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he became, you know... It, it, Instantly became one of the gods, even even in his time. Oh yeah, he was constantly swatting away these worship worshippers. Yeah, um, there's quite a few suttas on that where they yeah. wanted to elevate him to this godlike status, and he said, "No, no, I'm just a guy. You can you can bring me dinner, but no more." Right. <laughs> and and as soon as you do that, as soon as you you make him a god, or even elevate him slightly above you. Uh, you lose the effectiveness of the, yeah. the Dhamma. And most of modern Buddhism talks about the Buddha as one God, Buddha, among endless numbers of Buddhas mm-hmm. all throughout endless history. And I'm reading the suttas and I never came across a reference where the, the Buddha said, my buddy, you know, this other Buddha, mm-hmm. you know, he just, right. it was just, this is what he did. He was just a human being that figured stuff out. And he thought carefully, should I bother even teaching this to, to a few folks? And so he did. Mm. You know, he thought he might be helpful. I got it. I just thought about something. That, what you were talking about, uh, similar to what Adam was saying. I had a, a student ask me, "Don't you wish you had?" He said something. Like, I, I've never come across anything. This is great. This is what I've been looking for my whole life. He said, "Don't you wish you had more students?" And I never thought about that. And I said, "No." I don't, I, again, I said, I, "I never thought about it." And then I said, and it's really true, I said, I'm just so fortunate to be a part of this Sangha. Mm-hmm. And I really mean it. I mean, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the Tathagata here. I'm the guy that went forward. Right. But I think Siddhartha felt the same way. Otherwise, he would have been wandering around northern India all by himself, you know, mumbling about the Four Noble Truths to himself. And I would be the same if it wasn't for the Sangha. You'd see me walking up and down French and going, Dukkha, Dukkha, Dukkha. But I don't have to do that. Yeah. You don't have to wear the sandwich board. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> repent, repent. The end is near. But it really is. This is... We are, again, the living example of something that started 2,600 years ago, and it has nothing to do with numbers. It has to do with effectiveness, just like it was during the Buddha's time. It's just, it's just a marvelous way to live our lives, I think. Thank you, Dhamma Teacher David. Uh, Dhamma Teacher Ram. Dhamma Teacher David. Sorry, Ram. It's limiting... I'll say that again. Because it's limiting, it's very specific, and you're yes. not adding a whistle, and you're not adding a bell. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you're not adding a sage ceremony. You're not adding a poem. Yeah. And it's allowing you to focus. Yeah. And because of that, Adam's less confused, and then the Laura could come in. And not be confused as well. You, I'm going to interrupt you because you brought something that's so important. You mentioned Sage. And back, you might remember, I'm going to say who she is, but somebody wanted us to use Sage and, and cleanse the room before each class. And I had actually, you know, years ago, I was hanging out with some Lakota Sioux down in New Hope, and we, we always started whatever we did with the Sage thing. But that's what they did. I didn't think there were any evil spirits that we needed to clear out. But think about if we started doing that. Every student from that point on would think that sage is an important part of their awakening. Mm -hmm. And that's a lie. And that's why we don't teach it. And so then you're always looking at your meditation practice and getting the best sage for you. You know, or you you ran out of sage so you can't meditate that day. Mm -hmm. You put a condition, you put a ninth factor of the Eightfold Path that is just a condition. It's just a fabrication. What's the fabrication? That if if I burn this up in the room, I'm going to get rid of all the evil spirits. Well, that might be true. But we don't practice that here. Mm. And evil spirits can't affect us. They just, they don't have the, I'm sorry, David, were you finished? <laughs> Thank you, David. So we have this, this beautiful, uh, simple practice. And we have this beautiful and simple sangha that we get to engage with. Uh, and the, the effect isn't that much different online as in person. But I will say that those of you that can get to class in person, get to class in person, uh, and that's, we're going to go out, David and I are going out to breakfast and everybody is welcome to join us. Uh, you, those of you are going to have to get here pretty quick, but 
we'll be we'll be leaving right after class. But we'll uh, we're, our retreats coming up. Those of you that are joining us, uh, if you have time, please review the uh, the suttas. Um, it'll just help your retreat experience. And we'll finish with meta as we always do. So again, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties, and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Thank you. See you all soon. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Have a good breakfast. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.